This right. is an eight iron, and it's a dead shank. Wow. Way right. Oh, Takes a, a hop off the path. You gotta be kidding me. Very tough pitch shot right here. You gotta hit it into the hill. One hop up and bite, and it's in. Kind of like that. Well, I would like to welcome Golf Channel analyst and Corn Ferry Tour winner Jerry Foltz to the Sub 70 podcast. Uh, Jerry, thanks for taking the time today. I really appreciate it. I'm always shocked when anybody wants to talk to me, much less listen to me. So thank you more than anything. And no worries. Um, <laughs> figure we'd start with uh, what happened yesterday at the Sony. Sort of uh, an interesting finish. Took a bunch of time, et cetera, et cetera. Some... Uh, some strange unfoldings, to say the least, sort of uh, from 5,000 feet. with sort of your uh, view of that final round, especially those last few holes? Uh, I was texting with Kurt Byram, who was walking with that last group uh, yesterday, and um, and I said I feel so bad for him, cause he, and that's exactly what Kurt said for Brendan Steele. He said he is absolutely the nicest guy on tour, and a tour full of nice guys, but he is at the top. And it was just it was tough to watch that. I mean, he is going to – replay that back nine those short miss putts every miss putt he didn't make a single putt on the back nine the entire time uh for a long long time because that's uh you know nobody really tried grabbing it away from him but he certainly gave it away in the end and that's a tough one a tough pill to swallow but cameron smith i think he's good for the game he's kind of brash young australian and uh and it was cool to see him win but it was really tough to see a guy who you respect and love so much to lose one that like that I've heard from the guys I know in tour as well. I've heard Steely is just the best guy ever. So yeah, it's hard not to root for him and coming off a, you know, not his best season last season. Hopefully he can take, you know, well, let me ask you this. You play professional golf at a high level is in time. Can you take something away from that? I mean, you, you know what I mean? Like in a sense, you played well, you're playing well, you're doing the right things happens on the back nine is, does that sink in after the hurt or is this one just going to be damn tough to get over? You know, we always say that because it just seems like the right thing to say. This will be a learning experience. But I always uh, I always kind of defer to a, a quote from Judy Rankin because she said in a, on the air one time to me, she goes, you know, I've heard that so many times. And in my opinion, and yeah, I can't imitate her voice, but it's so lovely. Um, she goes, you learn a lot more from winning than you do from losing. Uh, and she's absolutely right. Um, so... I don't know if he, if how much he's going to learn from it, but he is going to take away the fact that he's playing well. Yes, yes. You think that 15 minute delay had something to do with that goofy kind of golf shot that a player of that level normally doesn't hit? You know, left of left. Um, no, he was uh, nervous already. He was really nervous already. You could tell by the putt, even the putt at 17, but all the putts on the back nine looked pretty darn nervy. Um, he was striping it pretty well, but to hit an iron shot from the fairway that far left, that is. That is, is something you just don't see very often from a guy who's really hit the ball great all week long. What storylines uh, from the PGA Tour interest you the most in this upcoming season? Is there a few topics that, that you kind of find intriguing as we go forward? Um, you, you know what? At the parity at the top, we're all trying to build up this rivalry between Rory and Brooks and, and maybe throw JT in there, see if Jordan gets his game back a bit. Uh, the parity at the top is what's amazing to me and to see and to kind of be situated for five, I call them five majors. I think players uh, probably the, the toughest tournament to win and certainly should be considered a major. But for the five biggest events on tour, we can have two or three or four of those guys fighting it out at the top. And that to me 
is a lot of fun to watch. I think uh, there's a big curiosity about Jordan Spieth. Does he get back to the to the instinctive play that, that put him at the top? Um, Brooks Koepka is kind of an enigma, isn't he? Uh, Dustin Johnson, is he gonna you know is he gonna get back to where he was, or is he just kind of gonna you know uh, play occasionally good golf because we're used to seeing him be pretty well dominant at the top? Um, Justin Thomas, could he have a player of the year type year? He's already in that, heading in that direction, but, uh, and really put himself amongst one of the game's elites. When he won Hawaii back to back a few years ago, um, I, I remember I was interviewing Jordan Spieth at the time was still playing great golf and, and it, Justin had just won Kapalua and I was interviewing Jordan at, at Sony and then and Justin was playing great. I think it was Saturday. And I asked, I asked uh, Jordan Spieth, I go, is this the birth of a great player or is this simply a, a really good player having a great couple of weeks? He goes, neither. He said, he's always been a great player. You're just starting to see it. So he could be the dominant one of all the names we mentioned. He could certainly be the, the one that stands out by the year's end as the most dominant. Um, yeah, but there's no real, you know, there's no real controversy out there that I, that I, that I think is going to be addressed other than how Patrick Reed, if he ever does own up to it and come clean and beg for forgiveness instead of trying to defend his actions, which is, is really his only way out of it. And it's, it's put the tour in just a quandary of trying to protect one player's reputation, but against the will of all the other players on tour, not all, but most of the other players on tour, um, yeah, it, that's that's really the toughest situation right now from a controversy standpoint. But I, I I just don't see any big issues facing the tour this year, other than the fact they're going to sign a nice TV deal. Hopefully, Golf Channel's a part of it, and uh, we'll move forward and present the PGA Tour and all professional golf in a in a more expanded light with a number of different platforms and a lot of different viewing experiences for the for the fans. The speed thing to me is uh, is an interesting topic in the sense of, and I, we'll get into this a little bit later because I know you brought it up when I was doing my my research for for you coming on the podcast. But do you think it's at some level just trying to be great, and in that process of trying to get better, you could potentially lose kind of what how you did it, and you know, used to kind of have more of a one way miss, and now the ball striking stats aren't what they used to be. Do you think? There's a little bit of Luke Donald in this when he was trying to hit it further versus, you know, sticking with what got him to number one in the world. Is is that – or is this just an ebb and flow of professional golf? Of what yeah, Luke, Don, Luke Donald, you could put uh, you could put a number of players in that category uh, over the years. Ian Baker Finch won the British Open or the Open Championship and wanted to try hitting it further, and next thing you know, couldn't find the golf course. Um Lydia Ko on the LPGA side, who was a dominant number one, who decided she ne- needed to hit it longer, and and uh, and has basically lost what got her there. I I have this conversation a lot with guys of my generation, young and a little bit younger and a little bit older, who are past their prime playing days, and the same sentiment always comes out: Why do you change what got you there? I, I know it's inevitable. The culture of professional golf is to try and get better. You're surrounded by coaches, by manufacturers, rep trying to get you to hit this because it's going to make you better. It's going to let you hit it farther. It's going to do this or that. Uh, coaches trying to attach their name to your success and try and get telling you they have the secret. They can fix you. Um, and then you lose your instinctive swing. The only person I've only seen that really – Three players in my entire life who who under who've under transformed their swings, undergone massive swing changes, and gone on to more success perhaps than they had before. Although that's arguable because you have no idea of knowing how much success they would have had had they not changed. That's Marco Mira, Nick Faldo, and Tiger Woods on three occasions. 
Um, if Tiger Woods never changed his swing from 1996, who knows how many wins he would have and how many majors he would have and how fewer injuries he might have. Um, and those are the only three I can think of. Almost every time somebody tries to get better, they get worse, and so often they lose what got them there. And I, I hope and pray that's not the case for Jordan because he's a great dude and he's fun to watch, but he was a, a very instinctive player with a technique that you would never teach, a, basically a home-built technique with a weak grip and a chicken wing left arm. And, uh, and he seems to not be able to rely on those instincts. I, I mean, he willed the ball in the hole. He willed the ball onto the green. He willed the ball in the fairway. And when you when you start doubting your swing, when you get to the top of that backswing, and there's one element of doubt in there, instead of that positive energy that he exuded so much more than anybody else when he was playing great, then you, you're you're in for trouble. And he's uh, yeah, it's a tough hole to fight back out of. Really, really tough. I actually didn't mind his for a professional. I didn't mind his sort of chicken wing anti left professional push golf swing. Right, like it, it, especially with the irons, man. That's not a bad way to play. If you can keep that thing really square for that period of time and not have it go left on you very often, like I don't know, I I, I kind of liked his his action when he was sort of winning everything. It it just seemed to kind of work, and uh, it was long enough, right? You were out there with him, like it's not like he was short. Um, just it's just strange to me how you know player of that level can try to, but I get it, their pursuit of excellence a little bit. But it'll be interesting to see what he does this year. It's it's hard not to root for him. Uh, Phil Mickelson, I see on Twitter he is uh, hitting bombs, club head speed over 121. He's, you know, seems like power is the direction he's going. We all know it's a power game. Do you like the direction that Phil has kind of taken it uh, for the 2020 season uh, with his preparation work? Well, he's trying to turn back the, the clock, isn't he? He's trying to find the fountain of youth, uh, both from a physical standpoint, looking as uh, well as lowest body fat he's ever had in his life. And then from a, from a club head speed standpoint, Phil Nicholson, I've known since college, I, I watched him when he won in Tucson as an amateur. I was caddying that very same week for a friend of mine, Mike Springer. Um, when I was out of school, finish, well, out of eligibility, finishing up school. And Mike was playing uh, as an amateur as well, but uh, he, he always swung out of his shoes. So the search for power, the quest for power is nothing new to Phil. He just, he's at the age now where you kind of feel like you validate yourself a little bit by, by getting longer and, and proving that you can uh, turn back at the father time, which never really is the, the truth, but he seems to be convincing himself of that, which is more important. Um, I don't know what Phil's got in the remaining, you know, four, five, six years. He's got to perhaps be somewhat competitive on the tour. I wouldn't surprise me if he won again this year, if he won once and maybe got in contention three or four times. Um, but it's, it's put it this way at his age. Now he's, he's, he is not uh, declining in his physical skills as quickly as basically everybody else through history has at that same age. And Brandel Chamblee says it best, long swing, long career. And that's just been proven throughout uh, time. And, and I think that's the, the key to Phil's success, the, the avoiding injuries and, and the amazing short game and, and the creativity. Uh, but I don't, it, it seems like he's trying to prove something right now. And I, I think more than anything, he's trying to prove it to himself. Champions Tour starting this week. Uh, I'm sure you know a lot of the guys out there as you're in your 50s. Um, at this point, how much do you enjoy watching uh, Champions Tour stuff since you probably know a lot of the guys? And uh, who do you really enjoy following if you do watch a little of it uh, still that you really enjoy watching still play the game? 
I watch every minute of it that I can. I, uh, I don't cover the champions too much. I did back in the day, but I don't cover it much. Um, I enjoy watching it. Those are my friends. Those are the guys I played college golf with and professional golf against and, and, and the guys that, uh, I have a lot of stories with, put it that way. So, uh, the one guy I root for the most is kind of on the fringe out there. Tommy Toll has been one of my best friends forever, but there's I run down the list and I know almost every single guy out there, at least from the American standpoint. And I've spent time and played with pretty much all of them as well. Um, Langer's an anomaly, isn't he? It's just, he keeps going and going. It's just amazing. Scott McCarron, uh, I've never seen the guy with a frown on his face. He's so much fun to be around. And I always root for him. And uh, what a great year he had last year, winning the Charles Schwab Cup. Um, but so many, you know, I like, uh, I kind of, because it, the story of my career and, and a lot of my broadcasting being primarily brought up broadcasting on the now Cornberry tour has been rooting for the underdog. So it's the, you know, the West short juniors of the world and the Scott Perrells and the guys who didn't have outstanding PGA tour careers who've gone out there to find some success and, and, and quite frankly, um, set themselves up a, a little bit better off financially uh, for the remainder of their lives for, a, you know, a retirement of some sort. And that's a, a huge part of it for guys like that. Unfortunately, those stories don't sell as well as, you know, Phil Mickelson goes out there and wins or Greg Norman came back out and played a few events. That's what the people want to see. But those are the, those underdog stories are the ones that are the most impactful to me. I had Tommy Tolles on the podcast and, uh, what an interesting story. It's hard not to root for him. I was out at one of the events too, and it was in Chicago land. I'll tell you what, man, he, he hits it good still. I mean, yeah. he gets it good. When what a class act guy! Like it's not, it's hard not to be a fan of his spending some time with him. But tell you what, he hasn't lost much off his fastball. It's, uh, it's no hit really, really good. He can play, man. He can really play. Tommy, one time when he was he was living in Flat Rock. He lives either in Flat Rock or Hendersonville, neighboring cities up in uh, well, it's South Carolina, North Carolina. Um, anyway, he had had some success on tour and, and built a nice house on a big piece of property. It's kind of mountainous up there and. And he bought a tractor one day. <laughs> I said, what the hell are you doing with a tractor? He goes, well, I already had the trailer. I just needed something to put on it. It was, uh, I mean, the funniest line ever. So what Tommy would do just therapeutically would go out and move boulders around his own property just for fun on the tractor. You know, a lot of us go, you know, we might go to the bar and shoot pool. We might go, uh, go hang out with our friends. We might do things like that to get our mind away from the game. Tommy would hop on a tractor and and move boulders around his property and if he wasn't doing that he was gardening in the yard and that uh, ended up becoming more or less an occupation of sorts for quite a long time before he uh, found some success out there on the pj tour champions yeah and he had a great playoff run this year i mean he was right there in every tournament so like i said i've been watching you know i've been a fan of his in the 90s when when i was you know into golf just kind of getting started with it and stuff i always loved his golf swing but it's very very great story and it's a very cool story and Super nice guy. Um, anything you think they could do to the Champions Tour to make the product even better? Uh, I, you know, we all know those guys can really still play, but maybe something like a Senior Rider Cup, or you know, would love to see. They'll probably never have it, but you know, a Masters event like they're they're expanding that out to women's golf. Would that would be, I think, a fantastic thing from the right yardage to see those guys kind of play Augusta and, and play something like that. Do you think this might be? wishful thinking but is there anything that may be more practical uh that wouldn't be that you know crazy in left field that could kind of enhance the product uh, even more than what's already a great product in my opinion 
I appreciate you saying that. I, I believe it is too. Uh, we had a senior writer cup of sorts for four or five, maybe six years down at Sea Island area down in there. It was called the Warburg Cup, and then it was called the UBS Cup. Um, and the very first year, Arnie and uh, and Gary were the captains. I got to cover their match on a 29 degree day, a singles match on that Sunday. And my God, we were worried that they both survived, much less uh, broke 90. It was. It was a miserable, miserable day, but two of the greatest uh, ambassadors for the game ever. Uh, and that's, you know, if there's one thing that's missing the mass appeal, it's what it was founded on, and that was nostalgia. Uh, the champions, the PJ Tour champions was always about nostalgia. Arnie playing, and then Jack playing a limited schedule, and Gary playing all the time, and, and Lee Trevino, uh, getting back to your Jordan Spieth comments, Lee Trevino, probably the most effective golf swing in history from being able to control the golf ball. Um, but we're not going to see that now primarily because the guys who are coming from the PGA tour that would bring that nostalgia are very few of the, of the huge stars. You have a, you know, you have an Ernie Els and a Phil Mickelson, perhaps uh, Fred couples is a little past his prime still plays out there. Um, but the guys that, that really turn up the notch on the nostalgia side, um, there just aren't that many and they make so much money during their PGA tour career that, you know, going to play week in and week out simply the reason they would only only reason they would do it is just because that's all they know as opposed to is it going to help them out in the long run um it's going to be tough to 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 market the nostalgia aspect of it even though they try with the with the ones they have um so i don't know what the what the elixir is for for a greater appeal to the audience for it other than uh what they're doing now they they do a great job bringing out the personalities the players are all in when whomever is broadcasting, be it Golf Channel or, or one of the other partners during their majors, uh, need an interview or want to do an on-course interview or, or really just want to get to know them. The guys are the most accommodating of any of the men professional golfers uh, as, as a whole. And um, I think, and, and you see so many tournaments that are just massive, massive crowds and sold out from a spectator standpoint. So the TV numbers might not be up because quite honestly, there's only so many hours in a day that you can watch golf and we have it on basically Thursday through Sunday, every daylight hour, there's a live tournament on the golf channel and, and usually on the network on the weekend. So I, I don't know how much bigger the numbers can get, but I do like the fact that it's becoming, it's, it's getting much more oriented to competitiveness because they know the nostalgia side is, is weak uh, from a marketing standpoint. So they're doing their best to weed out the non-competitive guys and making it more competitive. And, and there's a whole generation of people who like watching those guys play and watching them be competitive and watching seeing the best player win, not necessarily seeing the biggest star hit shots. Growing up in uh, Las Vegas when you did, what was the uh, golf scene like then, uh, probably in the 70s, uh, you know, even early 80s? And, and how did you get hooked on the game uh, when you were younger and started playing? Wow, well, yeah, it was that so long ago. Um, I, my dad used to play weekend golf. He worked in the casino business as a dealer and then a floor man, or I don't even know all the jobs in a casino. And he would play golf on the weekends occasionally with his friends, and I'd get to tag along and maybe hit a shot now and then. And then I'd go to the range and hit balls at the Las Vegas Muni, and I just, I just kind of, I just caught the bug at about, uh, well, about nine or ten years old. And then uh, the summer I was ten, turning eleven, I used to buy these summer passes. So for like fifty dollars for the whole summer, I could play unlimited golf. And I just, my mother or sister would drop me off at daylight, and they pick me up past dark, and I just never left. And I was around so much that they finally gave me a job. 
for about five or six years. I worked every other day from three o'clock till close. And then I got to play all the golf I wanted. And I kept that job all the way up till I was playing high school golf. And I, I never left and I, and I loved it. And I got to know everybody uh, in the Vegas golf scene, which was quite eclectic back then, especially at a, at a Muni where they had these massive gambling games every single day. And the, the stories I could tell you about the Mel, they used to call it the Mel Hayes and, and the names and the characters and the, and the, and the complete broken sets of clubs that would come to me to, to have to send to, to, uh, Murphy to, I think his name was Merle Murphy to get them all reshafted. Um, it was absolutely hilarious. The, the, the blend of personalities, but the skill level. And then there was a guy of a legend that is Monte Carlo money was his name. We called him Carlo. He shot 58 at Las Vegas Muni one day and literally doesn't remember it. He has, he, he had a little bit of an alcohol issue. <laughs> he, <laughs> He, he shot 14 under par in the Mel Hayes, won all the money. He was the best player to ever come out of Vegas that you never heard of. And those are, you know, those are funny stories to tell. Everybody knows somebody like that. But uh, he was just an absolute golf savant. He hit it miles with a lot, of, with a lot of ball and a wooden club, driving par fours like you couldn't believe. But he shot 58 and had never remembered it. So, yeah, my sweet spot for golf might be like three or four beers, and his must have been about a case, and then he was – you know, in his oh, zone, no. per se? There was way more than a case. Way more than a yeah. case. Okay. No, he was too experienced. Yeah, he could he could have remembered a lot with a case. Yeah, he was he was deep. Did uh, uh, d- did you get to play against the uh, Armour Brothers back in uh, that period of time of Sandy and TA3? TA3 was always an age group ahead of me, and he was he grew up of a little more affluent lifestyle. Uh, his dad was a doctor. Um but uh, I always felt like I had an end with him because my dad, early in his childhood, used to shag balls for the Tommy Armour the first. So uh, Tommy always treated me very nicely. He's a good dude. Uh, Sandy was uh, more in my age bracket. It wasn't the player Tommy was quite. He was pretty good, but he didn't take it nearly as seriously as Tommy did. Tommy won everything. It was Tommy uh, Armour the third, and then a guy named Eric Dutt who never made it to the tour, but has made a very nice career for himself in the Las Vegas golf scene. Uh, they were the they were the two best guys that I used to emulate. And then uh, I remember when Willie Wood came into town as an amateur and won our Nevada Open, uh, and he became somebody I idolized for a long time. Only even though he's only a couple years ahead of me, he's uh, he's been a great guy and a good friend to have for a long, long time. But um, yeah, I used to qualify. I used to caddy in the Monday qualifier, the rabbits, the old rabbit system yeah. they had for the Las Vegas Invitational. I remember. I was nine or 10 years old. My dad took me out to the Sahara, Nevada Invitational, Las Vegas Invitational, whatever it was called then. And I sat on the driving range watching Arnold Palmer hit two irons. This had to be 71 or two. So Arnold wasn't exactly in his prime, but he was still one of the guys. He was still the guy, actually. And uh, and he saw me stand there. And there's you know, quite a few people around, but not a ton. And um, nothing like what you would see at Tiger Woods hitting balls in an event now. And uh, he, he kind of called me up to the front and I sat, sat right on the ground, right under the ropes, watching Arnold Palmer hit two irons uh, from probably eight feet behind his golf ball and taking these divots that every single one of them looked like a dollar bill. They were about that size. They were about that thin. And it was just the most amazing sound I had ever seen. And I think experiences like that as a kid is really what got me hooked on golf and, and, and fall in love with it. And I think to this day, the reason my job never gets boring is because I, I just love the game so much. It's, you know, the personalities come and go, the stories come and go, but the game itself and watching people play it with different levels of expertise and mastery is something that just never, ever gets old. 
with those old forged irons and those soft pelada balls, you, you hear those sounds still. It still is the greatest compression sound ever from those guys from that generation on a long iron. Somebody put some on Twitter of Seve, just probably a one or two iron just drilling it. And there is just Olafable back when that, you know, in the 80s when the equipment was still, relatively speaking, old school. Isn't that like the greatest sound ever of the a long click. iron? Yeah, that long the iron click. compression. And then, and then the sound it makes through the heavy morning air is it just whistles out of sight. And, and you know, climbing the whole way. The spin rates were out of control with the yeah. Pilata ball, obviously, yeah. compared to now. And just climbing the whole way, hitting that arc and then falling down and making that kind of whistling sound. It was just, I, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it, it sounds a little troubling, but I remember it so clearly. But it was really something. Absolutely. Um, you had a good amateur career, <laughs> and then you decided to turn pro. Uh, what what made you decide that okay I want to actually try to do this for a living and um, when you start off as a young professional looking back at it now was it just a ton of fun or is it just one hell of a grind or a little bit of both? It was a ton of fun looking back on it and it was a ton of fun to live it and I enjoyed every minute of it. I probably probably could have used a little more direction at that age in my life in terms of uh, practicing with a purpose and trying to you know, get better. And I made the same mistake that we've already talked about. I, I, I had a great first year as a professional and then, uh, then decided I needed to change things and get a little better and uh, finished 11th on the, what was in the Hogan tour, Corn Ferry tour. And, and never was the same again, completely lost what got me there. Tommy Tolles gets on me all the time when we talk about it. He's like, you could have been one of the top 10 players in the world if you never changed your swing, but you're an idiot. And that's coming from Tommy who's constantly tinkering with his swing. Um, but you know, it's all I ever wanted to do, obviously, with my passion for the game from an early age. I always figured I would try and give it my best because I would always regret it if I didn't. And then if it didn't work out, I would figure out something. Uh, you know, I don't I don't need a lot. I'm not a man of, of, of uh, complicated needs. And uh, I knew I would figure it out somehow. And then eventually backdoored my way into this career 20-something years ago with the Golf Channel that has become, uh, has become my job for the longest time and, and a job that you couldn't. I mean, I'd do it for free if they if they wanted me to, if I had the money to do it. Um, and it's it's a lot of fun. But I didn't know anything else to do. It's what I wanted to do. I got hurt early in my career, even before my career started. Got in a car accident and couldn't play for the longest time. And I was pretty much done with golf. Got a real estate license, managing bars and restaurants, and and just figuring it out. Like I said, and then uh, one gentleman uh, one day that I was working for, he owned a restaurant. He came from uh, pretty significant wealth. The guy, uh, the late Bill Hillenbrand played golf with him one day. He owned the restaurant where I worked and I, I made five birdies, uh, six birdies and nine holes, including the last five in a row. And the next day he pulled me to his dinner table and his wife and he said, we talked about it and uh, you're fired. He said, give me a contract. Let me know a number that you need and you're going to play professional golf. And that was uh, 1990, the summer of 1990 and uh, never looked back. He sponsored me for 10 years and it, and he, it wasn't a profitable investment by any means, but he was such a great guy and uh, and made my life possible i'm curious what did what what got taken out of your golf swing that kind of looking back you wish didn't get taken out was there uh was it just pure athleticism that you sort of had and they tried to get technical or what sort of happened uh when you, you you know you kind of went down that that process that didn't work out you know the way you thought it would uh, well, I always thought, you know, you, 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 you kind of fight those. I played golf with my son yesterday and I, I said, when you're 50, you're going to fight the same errors in your swing. Cause he said, you know, some days I just forget how to swing. I go, your swing's exactly the same as it was yesterday when you hit a great, 
Like, are we always going to fight the same fundamental problems? And mine always was taking it back steeply, kind of Kenny Perry-ish, if you will. Uh, and, but I would bring it down. I would drop it right down on plane. Well, in an effort to try and get rid of that, I, uh, I just shallowed it out so much. And, and I mean, before getting stuck was a catchphrase, I was stuck permanently. And my ability back then to cover the ball, to hit that bleeder fade, uh, that with a shallow divot, the low fade, really one of the toughest shots in golf to hit. And that was my only really go-to shot. Uh, and when I lost that ability, I lost the ability to, uh, then you, you lose the ability to really know where the golf ball is going. And Kurt Byron, and I've had this conversation a million times. If you never, ever changed your golf swing, you would know where the golf ball is going. Mo Norman was a, was a ball striking savant. It wasn't because his technique was all perfect. Um, it was because he never once thought about changing it. He was, you know, he, he maybe autistic. Who knows if he was on the spectrum, but certainly a savant of some sort. Um, he never changed it, and he hit every ball, every ball. Literally, I watched him a thousand times. Every ball dead straight. It was it was phenomenal to watch. So you always wonder if you'd never change your swing, you have to know where the golf ball is going. And then when you start doing that, and you start losing it, you start fighting to try and get it back, and you you start searching for that elixir then you neglect all the other parts of your game that are so hugely important. I could get it up and down from anywhere uh, back when I was playing because I had to for the most part. And then once you start working so hard on your game, you neglect that. And then you're, you're pretty much toast. It's uh yeah, it's uh it's an interesting thing that, like I said, it can, it can happen. Like I know Brandon Chambly has talked about it, how athletic his swing was and it was his natural swing and then got more technical and he was never quite the same player as he was at, at Texas. So you're not the only one it seems to have happened to in that pursuit of excellence. And uh, maybe, you know, us out here, uh, amateur golfers, kind of reinforces, stick with maybe what you got and, you know, try to refine it a little bit. But if you've been playing for an extended period of time and playing pretty well, you know, maybe you know, refine it versus try to rebuild it all the time might be the, the way Absolutely. to go for most of us. Yeah. Absolutely. Like the, the, the instances of, of players – that did that, there are so few. Jack Nicholas comes to mind, never changed his swing. Jack Grout would work on a couple of fundamentals with him. Sam Snead, when he hit it bad, he used to practice barefoot just to work on his balance. Um, in the modern game, the only two players I can think of that have never changed their swing, have never worked on their swing, is uh, Bubba Watson, who's never had an instructor. And on the LPGA, one of the dominant Koreans, Sung Hyun Park, uh, one of the prettiest golf swings you'll ever see, never had a, never had instruction, works on it herself. And she'll... Uh, she'll always know where the golf ball is going, much like Bubba. Even with that quirky, completely unconventional, powerful swing, he's he's always going to have control of that golf ball. have to ask you, because you said you played the Australian Tour in the 80s, and every guy I've talked to who played professional golf around the world in the 80s has some great stories from him. There's a different beast back then. The uh, Not a whole lot of people were in the gym pumping iron. It was more or less uh, post-round beers, and it seemed like it had been a hell of a lot of fun to play in that era. You got a couple of good stories from uh, from those adventures from back in the day. Uh, six and a half months in Australia as a twenty, what was I? Nineteen eighty eight, eighty nine, twenty six year old. Uh, I'd just gotten married, and so, but we didn't have any money, so my wife couldn't come with me. She was a school teacher, and I went down there with a friend of mine who sponsored the trip. Basically, he ended up caddying for me, but we uh, we traveled that country. Um, oh my God! Crashed a couple cars. We we played cards with the Australian guys, Euchre and, and, and cribbage all nights of the hour. Back then there weren't many driving ranges. You had to shag your own balls. And I remember once uh, my buddy who was paying for the trip got tired of caddying for me. He, he hired this local German kid named Klaus in Sydney. 
And uh, I was out on the range at a course called Riverside Oaks and Cat outside uh, outside Sydney, and uh, it was a miserable day, rain and sideways, and there were two people on the range. It was one of their bigger events. It was the Australian PGA, and there were two people on the practice field, myself and Greg Norman, and that was it. And he had no idea who I was. He couldn't care less. Um, but he was he was also very generous to me at the same time. But he's hitting like twos and three irons to Steve Williams, who was caddying for him at the time. And Steve's out there falling asleep, basically catching him standing still with a, with a towel on, on the fly. It, it was just, I mean, he'd have to step three or four steps one way or the other. And I'm hitting eight irons, and Klaus is out there doing wind sprints. And I just felt so, so, so inadequate. But uh, probably a dozen times, dozen or so times that year, at the because Greg only played in the bigger events. But when he would play at an event and I had the opportunity, he had this, uh, this incredible post-round post routine he would go hit 60 golf balls on the range, one regular size range bucket from the day. Uh, if they had a range and if they didn't, he'd have Stevie Shagno. And I would, every chance I got, I would sit right there much like I did with Arnold Palmer and watch him hit it. Cause I had never, ever, and never will see somebody drive a golf ball better than Greg Norman. It was, it was just phenomenal. And he was, uh, he was great, but he, you know, he said something that's kind of a learning experience for a lot of people. Uh, we had a player meeting with a mandatory player meeting you have to have. And it was early in that six month season and, and player meetings usually are the, become the same environment of uh, the commissioner or the head of whatever, uh, of what happens, uh, competitions stands up there, says a few things, says, here's what we need you to do. You know, you got to drink the Kool-Aid and do this and do that. And, and then they open it up to players because it is the own, the tours are always owned, almost always owned by the players for their comments. And it just becomes a, how do I make my little lot in life a little better? You know, it's, it's just the way it is. How does this guy get in the event? And I don't get into the event. This guy cheated. You didn't do anything about it. What, you know, on and on and on. And then, and after about a half hour of this constant whining about making my little lot in life better that, you know, it, Greg Norman just, he stood up in the middle of this room. Nobody had stood up for any comments. He stood up and he goes, guys, enough. He said, here's the difference between me and you. He goes, you, guys, you guys are great. And you think you're great. And you think you can win. He goes, I know I can win. The difference is only inside. It's self-belief. It has nothing to do with any of the issues you guys are talking about here. If you go out there and you expect great things and you know you can win, you'll have success. And it was one of the greatest uh, little speeches ever. And it, it, I mean, it took a lot of guts because he is Greg Norman. And he was, and the Australians are a very highly critical society uh, amongst each other. Um, took a lot of guts to do that because he set himself up for a lot of backlash from the guys, but he, he said it and everybody, everybody just shut up. The, the King had spoken. He was the Australian King. And, uh, and the meeting was over five minutes later. And, and probably I, I would say from an administrator standpoint, they had their most uh, relaxing season ever after that talk from him to the players. Did you get to play the sand belt courses when you were down there? Played most of them. Yeah. Played, uh, I played I played Royal Melbourne, but not the composite course that we just covered. The president's got that, but yeah, I played Royal Melbourne, played Kingston Heath. I think I played a tournament at Kingston Heath. I can't remember. Uh, Metropolitan, we we were fortunate enough to get on just for a practice round one day, and I forget the the one course. There was a tournament there, and I can't remember the name of it. It was a sandbelt course, but it was more of a Parkland style course. Um, and I had made the cut. Back then, on the big, if you made the cut, you're in the next week. So I always made the cut in the little events and got in the big events and always gagged in the big events. This was a bigger event, and uh, I made the cut. And on Saturday, I had one of those days where it just nothing goes right, and then eventually you don't care, uh, and shot 90. And so 
I was in the first group off alone on Sunday, and I got there, and Graham Nightingale, who ran the tour, said, uh, Jerry, I got a favor to ask. He said, what? He goes, um, would you mind waiting around a few hours and playing in the second-to-last group? Because Roger Mackay, who was in third place, he had a family emergency. His daughter had been struck by a car or something, I think. Uh, she she ended up being okay, but he had a family emergency and can't play, and we don't want to send uh, a single out in the second-to-last group. And I said, well, absolutely, that'd be flattering as hell to play. And then I got to that first tee, and there were just hordes of people. Now, Roger Mackay was a very popular golfer in Australia and a great player. Um, and I couldn't figure out if they were there to see Roger Mackay or if they were there to see what a pro who shot 90 hits it like. So <laughs> but I did manage to find the fairway, a little thin healer off the first tee. Let's say no pressure there, right? You only got no. thousand, right? Yeah, and you're, you're obviously not playing at your very best. That must have been a fun first couple, two oh. or three holes of butterflies before you could kind of put that. Well, to you're rest making, you're making, yeah, you're making five dollar birdies. It really doesn't matter where I was in the field. If I could have shot fifty eight that day, and I would have made three hundred dollars instead of two fifty. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. but uh, I'd have to imagine it's a. Well, or I guess you could maybe just freewheel it too at that point, right? Who, who gives a shit at that point? You just. Go out there and fire at it. It's not like you're going to win the thing, so had to be some yeah. freedom in it as well. Have to imagine. I can't. I can't remember if I played with it. I think it might have been Bradley Hughes, who now teaches Brendan yeah. Todd, uh, or it could have been Brett Oler. I can't remember. It was one of those two, and, and they're both great guys. And I just had a blast. I have no idea what I shot that day, but I do remember the ninety. 